Welcome to the weekend edition of the Daily Stoic. Each weekday, we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, something to help you live up to those four Stoic virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And then here on the weekend, we take a deeper dive into those same topics. We interview Stoic philosophers. We explore at length how these Stoic ideas can be applied to our actual lives and the challenging issues of our time. Here on the weekend, when you have a little bit more space, when things have slowed down, be sure to take some time to think, to go for a walk, to sit with your journal, and most importantly, to prepare for what the week ahead may bring. There is only one more day to sign up for the Daily Stoic Leadership Challenge. I'm so excited. We've got a huge group of people who are lined up and ready to take this challenge with us. We're going to be talking to GMs of one of the great sports dynasties in American history. We're going to be talking to some military leaders, business leaders, entrepreneurs, people who have made it their business to study these questions of leadership. Each day you get an email from me. It's 63 emails, more than 30,000 words of all new content that helps you take the right steps along that week's path. There's going to be three leadership Q&As with me. Again, a live office hours video session with me. Ancient wisdom for the modern leader. It's going to be a masterclass in leadership with the cadence and rigor of a boot camp. It's also a live course, which means all the participants will join the course together. We're going to move through it together with the same goal. I'm so excited about the material we've put together for you. There is seriously just one more day at midnight central time. The challenge closes. You can't sign up after that. And then we're all going to be in this awesome cohort for the next nine weeks. I hope to see you there. Sign up now. Talk soon. Hey, this is Ryan Holiday. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoic Podcast. As you know, I've taken COVID pretty seriously. Got two young kids, can't be vaccinated. Also, because I can work from home and and I felt like my sort of obligation, again, per the Stoic idea of the common good, was... Was to, was to do everything I could to not contribute to being a part of the problem. So I haven't been in front of an audience. I haven't given a talk. I haven't gotten to go out and, uh, you know, do what I normally do and, you know, going on 18 months. But I did speak in front of an audience on Monday. Not a huge audience. It was about maybe 30 people. Um, and it was about something I mentioned here on the podcast before. There is a Confederate statue about two blocks from my office here in Bastrop, Texas, and my bookstore, which is downstairs. And in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder last year, finally, some momentum gathered around removing this statue, which not only uh, should not be there, should never have been put up in the first place. Even though the Civil War happened in the 1860s, the statue goes up in something like 1910, uh, its political implications were pretty clear. Um, And so I donated the first $10,000 to remove it. And I've been using my platform to talk about it. We raised collectively about $50,000. We pressured the city council to agree to move it. And all was going well until suddenly the Texas Historical Commission stepped in and attempted to slow or stop the whole thing. So I went down, there was an open hearing and I went down and I talked about it. And I'm going to run my uh, short three minute comment here for you to listen to. My name is Ryan Holiday. I'm an author. I have a small bookstore in Bastrop about two blocks from the Confederate monument in front of the county courthouse. 
I also have two young children, and, and I was excited to tell them that this was an example of the system working. The community rallied around an injustice in response to an injustice. We talked to our local representatives, felt like we were making progress, this was going to be removed. And then, sir, here we are a year later, and there, there hasn't been any progress. And when I think about the obstacles that have come up between us and the removal of this statue, I sort of stop and think, what are we, what are we talking about here? You know, we're talking about a monument that honors the worst thing that Americans have ever done to each other. And, and this specifically was a statue that went up in, in 1910. Uh, I got to know Richard Overton here in Austin before he died. He, he was a black man. He was actually born in Bastrop County. He was born before this statue went up, to give you a sense of its actual historical uh, recency. There, there, there were people alive until two years ago that, that predate this statue. And you know, this is a monument to the Confederacy, the people who attempted to tear this nation apart for the sole purpose of extending and perpetuating slavery. And this monument sits in a county that a lot of people don't know actually voted against secession, uh, voted against secession. And you know, this wasn't a statue put up by grieving widows or orphans. This was a statue put up three generations later. A newspaper article at the time that went up uh, said that this was a monument celebrating the, the great white-souled South. Right? It was a giant middle finger to the citizens who were attempting to assert their equal rights under the Constitution, under the, the pledge that we just, we just read together. It was not an attempt to celebrate history, but to hijack history. It's, it's based on a lie. So I, I beg the Historical Commission to do the right thing, to help move uh, along moving this statue, show the people that, that the system works, that when we come together and we talk, we actually can solve things. We, we, we want people to be peaceful. We want them to, to, to follow the law. We want them to work together. We did that. But let's not put unnecessary obstacles between them and doing the right thing. Milroe famously said that you can, judge a stat you can judge a society by the statues that it puts up. I think you can also judge a, a society by the statues that it leaves up, that it pays uh, public money to maintain. Um, and, and this is one of those. So please do the right thing, honor America, and, and please right this wrong by moving the statue. Thank you. If you want to reach out to the Texas Historical Commission, I would appreciate you doing this. And not only is there one in Bastrop that they're trying to remove, um, there is also one I got reached out to afterwards by some folks in Lockhart, Texas, which is the barbecue capital of the world. They are, they are raising, they need to raise about $15,000 more to remove this one. They have to do it by September. You can check out the GoFundMe campaign. Just, just search GoFundMe, remove the Confederate monument in Lockhart, Texas. There'll be a link in, uh, in the show notes as well. But if you want to donate, that would be uh, much appreciated. I think, obviously, all these things should go for the reasons that I'm talking about. If you want to uh, contact the Texas Historical Commission, uh, you can go to thc.texas.gov contact or you can just email thc at thc.texas.gov. Uh, tell them that you think this uh, monument should go. Uh, I would appreciate that. And I think it does make a difference. I think people want to be able to sort of do this in a vacuum. They want to be able to, you know, pretend like the implications, the consequences of it 
aren't real, that it's just another sort of item of business, but that's not the case. As my episode today with a wonderful poet and author, Clint Smith, uh, details his book, How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America, was an instant number one New York Times bestseller. It is basically a travel memoir slash historical narrative through some of the most controversial and provocative and I'd say indefensible monuments or landmarks in American history. It starts out in New Orleans. It ends all the way at a, at a slave market in Africa. He stops in at a Confederate cemetery. Some of the most fascinating uh, writing that he does is about the Angola prison, a former plantation turned maximum security prison in Louisiana. When I read uh, a piece that Clint wrote for The Atlantic, uh, I immediately reached out, got the book, I was so excited to talk to him. He is a great writer. This is a great book. You absolutely should read it. And I really enjoyed my conversation with him. And I'm excited to bring it to you. Check out his book, How the Word is Passed, a Reckoning with the History of Slavery in America. And you can follow Clint on Instagram as well. He is at Clint Smith Third. So that's Clint Smith III. Great writer, great dude. I think you're going to like this conversation. And uh, I encourage all of you to wrestle with history, whether you live in America, whether you live in wherever you live, whatever political affiliation you have. History is supposed to make you uncomfortable. It's supposed to challenge you. It's good that it does. That's how we grow. You can check out the book, Amazon, anywhere books are sold. I'm going to start carrying it in the painted porch. So I am going to include that link in the show notes as well. And then we also talk about Jack Weatherford's book, Indian Givers, which I also enjoyed. I put in the reading list email this month, and uh, we're carrying in the store, and people really love as well. So check out How the Word is Passed. Check out uh, Indian Givers. And we also talk about Wright Thompson's incredible piece in The Atlantic about Emmett Till. All definitely worth your time. Thanks to Clint. Enjoy this episode. One of the things the pandemic has revealed to me or helped me understand history, and I think it connects to to the idea in the book, but curious what you think. It was illustrative to me, you know, we're we're looking at, you know, basically, let's say it's like 20, 25% of the population is vaccine hesitant. The vast majority of people have taken the pandemic very seriously, you know, sacrificed an immense amount, uh, you know, put others' well-being and health above their own. And then, you know, there's clearly a percentage of the population for whom that is not just extraordinarily difficult, but sort of anathema to like whoever they are as people. Mm -hmm. It made me think, looking back historically, that, you know, we often look back at, say, the 1950s, or we look back at the 1850s, or 2,000 years ago. We get this sense that, like, everybody was on the same page. And it sort of made me realize, like, oh, actually a small percentage of the population can hold the rest of the country or the nation or humanity hostage and do incredible damage and and sort of define everything to everyone going forward. But at the time, we're actually not much more than a, than a faction. I mean, the South is a great example of this. Like, uh, not only did not the majority of the country want to tear the Union apart to preserve, fail- <laughs> to preserve slavery, but not even only a slim majority even of the south wanted to do it it's it, do you know what i mean that that mm-hmm. the way that a faction can just 
grab hold of the machinery of government or culture and take it to an incredibly dark, screwed up place. Yeah, it, it doesn't take many. And I think it, it's interesting because it, it goes both ways in some ways, yes. right? Where, you know, it is it is not the case necessarily that uh, the vast, vast, vast majority of Southerners were, were saying, we want to secede from the Union. Uh, we don't want to be part of the United States. We want to fight a war against uh, these states in, in the North. That is, that is not the case. Um, but at the same time, what is also the case on the other end is that, you know, not everybody in the North was an abolitionist, right? right. Like very few, the actual percentage of people who thought of themselves as abolitionists was pretty small. Right. And, and, and I think that, you know, even the notions of like what constitute, uh, what constitutes as abolition, uh, in our sort of collective public consciousness today is, is like a very limited and sort of myopic conception of, of what an abolitionist was in the sense that like, I was taught that abolitionists were, um, these people who, you know, were the opposite of the slaveholders, that Mm -hmm. they were the people who, uh, you know, worked on the Underground Railroad and uh, fought for the emancipation of millions of enslaved people and wanted uh, free, you know, wanted all enslaved people not only to be free, but to have the same rights uh, as they did if they were white abolitionists. And and you later learn that history is a lot more complicated than that. And that it is not that every abolitionist wanted to believe that enslaved people, uh, formerly enslaved people, um, should have equal rights. It is actually that there's a wide school of abolitionist thought in which some people thought slavery was wrong, but we should send them after they're freed to uh, Haiti or Liberia or South America. Or you had people who believed that, uh, you know, slavery was wrong and and you should, and black people should have um, equal rights, right? You have somebody like Thaddeus Stevens who believed in the sort of egalitarian, uh, in, in the equality of the races. And then you had somebody like uh, Abraham Lincoln, honestly, for so much of his life, who mm-hmm. believed that slavery was wrong, but that black people weren't necessarily equipped uh, or in a position to continue to live in the United States after um, slavery ended. All of that is to say, um, I think, you know, sometimes we like looking at history in, in sort of these uh, overgeneralized binaries with these clean demarcations that actually are not um, as clean as, as people would like them to be. Yeah, it, it's been interesting watching like Texas and Florida and California during the pandemic. So they're they're both sort of finger pointing each other like this is the Republican response, this is the Democrat response, and s- using the success or failures of the respective states as somehow like sort of proof that they're right or wrong. It's like people like California is a liberal state and look how many sort of COVID cases and deaths they have. And it's like, yeah, like 60% of California is liberal, which is a lot, right. but 40% of California is also a lot. Just as, you know, Texas is is a red state and Florida is a red state, but there's also millions and millions and millions of people in those states that took the pandemic very seriously, even if their local governments did not, right? So it's like, I think when you look at the Civil War or you look at an issue like slavery, it it, it it didn't neatly sort of uh, travel along the Mason-Dixon line. There were sort of people all over the spectrum of different beliefs. And then there was, as Lincoln says, I think, in his first inaugural address, you know, there was there was this percentage of the population that would rather destroy the Union than 
maintain it. And, and it, it, I think that's something we're wrestling with today. Like, you know, generally, let's say the majority of us are on one page. Uh, that's great. But if a small minority is, uh, you know, hell bent on getting its way or no way, and they care a lot more than you do, you are kind of at the mercy of that faction. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's throughout history always been something to say about uh, people who are the loudest. Um, yes. and, and that doesn't mean that they are necessarily the majority. And, and, and kind of alluding to what we were talking to, speaking to before, is like, in some ways it goes, it goes both ways, right? Like there are people who, uh, you know, are loud and wrong, um, and, and disproportionately because of how loud and, and predominant they seem, um, disproportionately impact, impact the way public policy is made. Um, but then, you know, when it's done well, there are also people who, who are loud and make, uh, thoughtful and, and, progressive political change um when they are not necessarily not not reflective of the majority but but that the people engaging in the um sort of on the ground advocacy so to speak are not uh are not necessarily reflective or not let's not say reflective but it is not that the majority of uh people are doing it, which is, so let me give a concrete yeah. example. So the civil rights movement, I think we tend to look back at the civil rights movement and we, we assume because of the way that it's taught that like everybody was in the street, right? That like all, you know, it just all, millions and millions of black people, millions and millions and millions of white people. But in terms of like the, the breakdown of how, how many people were um, directly engaged in a lot of the civil rights movement work and, and work for the black freedom struggle, it it wasn't millions and millions of people. Because the reality is that um, many people are just living their lives because they mm -hmm. they have to go to, they have jobs and they have to pay the bills and they have to feed their kids. And so sometimes when we look back at history, we can have a distorted sense that the thing that gets the most historical attention was something that... An enormous amount of people were directly engaged in at the time, but it, that's not necessarily always the case, you know, because throughout history, people, um, most people have just been people trying to live their life um, outside of the sort of uh, context of of the the greatest political struggles of the day. Yeah, I think it's because when we look back at history, we want to identify with the people who did the right thing, who put themselves out there, who acted with courage, um, even though statistically, that's quite unlikely. Like I, I was writing about this recently, like the French resistance, you know, how many people in France do you think participated in the French resistance, you know, against the Nazi occupation? You know, 20%, 30%, it was like 4%, right. you know? And, and, and that's like, that's such a, that, that's like an invading, nation coming into your house and 95% of the people were like, this is the new normal, <laughs> you know? Mm. Um, because, and, and that's not to say that everyone was a coward, but we always have our reasons, right? Mm -hmm. we, we always have our reasons why we can't get involved. And in a way that makes the, the civil rights, it's almost strange that we tell ourselves that lie because it undermines how truly impressive 
something like the civil rights movement actually was that the people who did it risked everything and they probably told themselves hey i'm gonna put myself out there and pretty soon you know there'll be millions of people behind me but they really actually did stand alone for a very long time and and then a lot of like the leader of it was killed for that it's only Mm -hmm. you know i was thinking about your book and monuments um someone just reminded me that like we're about to celebrate, I think the 10th, is it the, it's either the 10th or the 20th year anniversary of the Martin Luther King monument in Washington. That mm. didn't like go up like right after he died. Like Not that went up like recently, like they just finished it. And, and it, that's how long, you know, one might be in standing alone. Yeah, no. And, 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 and it's interesting because, you know, th- on the other end, the story of the monuments of so many of the Confederate monuments um, that we are having these conversations about now, in many ways, those didn't go up, I, I think, for a different reason uh, until, you know, some of them, these were not monuments that went up right after the end of the Civil War, no. monuments that went up in the uh, early 20th century, in the mid 20th century, around the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, and then some of them, I think about the the bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest that was just removed from the capital of uh, of Tennessee, and that was put up in 1978. And wow. Nathan Bedford Forrest is he was the he was a a leader uh, a, a general in the Confederate Army. I mean, he's the, a psychopath, like the first great wizard yeah, of the right. KKK. I mean, like this is it, it the the absurdity of it, right? That we put a bust of the first. Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan in the capital of any state. 40 years ago. 40 years ago. 19, almost 1980. You know, and but part of what it reflects is that those the people who were putting that up know, know that that person personified the sort of uh the personified white supremacy and what it stood for uh in it at its in its most abhorrent form and i think th- these monuments and these busts and this iconography are put up with the specific intention to send a message about what is valued and what is not who is valued and who is not what history uh is going to shape our public policy and what history is going to be pushed aside no and that that's why i liked your book so much i was actually on monday i spoke in front of the uh, Texas Historical Commission. I'm, I'm part of this uh, little group that's trying to get this Confederate monument moved off uh, the lawn of the courthouse down the street from from my office here in Bastrop, Texas. And uh, as I was explaining in front of the commission to go to what we were just talking about, this county actually voted against secession, but somehow in 1910 somebody decided you know we needed a Confederate monument. And and one of the things that struck me sort of looking into like sort of I'm down on the floor and I'm looking up that there's sort of three rows of these commissioners and they're uh, to a rule, uh, like almost all old white guys. Um, no offense, I guess eventually I'll be an old white guy, but but it, it, it wasn't the most representative panel. But what struck me as I was sort of explain, I, I was, and I'm going to run the comments at the beginning of this episode. Uh, so people have already heard them, but um, it, it's, it, what I was trying to say is like, this is a monument to the worst thing that Americans have ever done to each other, right? Not just slavery, which was horrendous, but then we decided 
we couldn't agree that it was it was horrendous. So let's murder each other for five years to settle. Mm. <laughs> you know who gets to decide that question. Mm-hmm. Um, I, what 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 struck me the most? What I was trying to express is like like why the fuck do you guys care about this so much? Like mm. why why like you didn't put it up. Your grandparents didn't even put it up. Like, why do you care about this so much? Like, what what possesses a person in 1978 to put up a monument to, like, not just, like, a bad guy, but one of the worst Americans who ever lived? I, I, I can't answer that question. I feel like your book was a journey to try to explain that. But do you have any insight as to why people care so much like couldn't they just not care and like like couldn't couldn't they just it's already like i guess what i'm saying is like it's what are you getting out of inserting yourself into like why are you throwing yourself in front of this monument like i remember at one of the protests about the monument um i get that there's people who don't care right they're like i got better things to do it's been there for a while um, but there was a group of of guys that had gotten up at like six in the morning and set up lawn chairs to protect the monument, like a human shield. Yeah. And I, it just struck me like, why do you care so much? What would possess a person to do that? Yeah, no, this is, you know, this is like one of the questions um, that not only the book is is wrestling with, but I think that that we've been wrestling with as as a country for for a long time and, and and certainly over the course of the past year or so. Uh, you know, so I, one of the places I go in the book, as you know, is the Blanford Cemetery. And mm-hmm. Blanford Cemetery is one of the largest Confederate cemeteries in the country. And I went there uh, for the Sons of Confederate Veterans Memorial Day celebration. And it was, you know, I, I was a very conspicuous presence uh, <laughs> yeah. at this event um, as as a black man. And, but I, I went because I wanted to I genuinely wanted to understand how someone comes to believe so many things that are very clearly empirically false, historically inaccurate, and and uh, mythologized, right? Like, how do you come to yeah. believe that slavery was not a central cause of the Civil War when all you have to do is look at the Declarations of Confederate Secession in 1861, where the states are are largely saying it for themselves, where a state like Mississippi says, our position is thoroughly aligned with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest in the world. Yeah, right? they like say they the not, quiet part out loud. Yeah, they were not vague about why they're seceding from the Union and why this war would be fought. Um, you know, Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, said in his cornerstone speech, this infamous speech he, he uh, said at the beginning of the conflict, where he was like, slavery is the reason for this great war that we are fighting. Like he you know it's it's so direct that the idea that someone would would say uh that that is has is somehow irrelevant to a conflict that ended up taking the lives of 700,000 uh soldiers on both sides is 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 absurd and yet something that many people believe and part of what I came to realize was that you know for many people history is not about empirical evidence or primary source documents or historical fact. It is a story they have been told, and it is a story that they tell. It is an heirloom that is passed down across generations through family, through lineage, through community. And, and you know, I think about a guy I met named Jeff, um, who was one of the sons of Confederate veterans, and he would tell me about how he and his grandfather 
would sit in the gazebo at the center of the cemetery uh, when he was a child. And they would sit there at dusk and they would, you know, watch the deers uh, slalom through the, the tombstones and, and chew on grass around all of these, uh, you know, Confederate flags that waved in the air uh, and, and how his grandfather would sing him songs. They would sing Dixie. He would tell him stories about all the brave men who were buried in the cemetery, who fought in the, the war of Northern aggression, who fought against the, the, the Yankees who were attempting to indoctrinate Southerners with their way of life and impose, uh, uh, you know, notion customs and culture on them that, that, uh, was a threat to who they were culturally, but also, uh, a, you know, a threat to an existential threat to their sense of, um, sense of self. And now that is a story that Jeff tells his granddaughters and he brings them to this same cemetery and they sit in the same gazebo and he tells this story, even though this story is, is not true. It's a lie. And, and, and so the thing is, if Jeff were to accept what we just talked about, right? If you know, if you were to present Jeff with the Declarations of Confederate Secession or Alexander Stevens' Cornerstone speech or the Crittenden Amendments before uh, the war that was intended, you know, a set of amendments that were largely attempted to assuage Southern slaveholders and say, okay, if you don't secede, uh, we'll put some amendments in that make it so that uh, your enslaved property can never be taken away from you. It failed, thankfully, because uh, the Republicans of the day were like, this is absurd. But it is another example of how slavery was the central cause uh, and the catalyst to the Civil War. Uh, and But the thing is, if Jeff is to accept that, then he would have to accept that his grandfather is a liar. And if he is to accept that his grandfather is a liar, it it threatens to disintegrate so much of the foundation upon which he believed their relationship stood on. And if he, and if that sense of his relationship to this person who he loves, who helped raise him, who was so central to his life, if that disintegrates and if he realizes that, that so much of it was based on lies, then it becomes an existential crisis for Jeff because so much of who he believes himself to be in the world is tied to a person who told him stories that helped animate and shape how he moved and understood himself in relationship to the world and in relationship to American history. Uh, and and it would it, he would struggle to under, get, have a sense of who he who he is, which isn't to say that that is an excuse at all, because right. um, there are plenty of people who have ancestors who you know fought. Uh, in the Confederate army, I went to Blanford with a friend in the book who was doing his own sort of reckoning, a white friend who's realized that his ancestors had been uh, slaveholders and that his ancestors had fought in the Confederate army. And um, and he was going to Blanford to do a sort of reckoning of his own. And he is not, he is not a son of Confederate veterans. He is not a Confederate sympathizer. He is not uh, a neo-Confederate. He's somebody who's like, man, you know, my this is a part of my family history and my family fought in a war over something that is deeply shameful and like and and I think it is possible to to do that but it is hard for many people to do because it threatens to call into question so much of who they believe themselves to be got a quick message from one of our sponsors here and then we'll get right back to the show stay tuned 
Dell Tech Fest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time, only save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. That's dell.com slash deals. Look, when I was first thinking of going to therapy, it was a little overwhelming, right? What's covered by insurance? How far do I have to drive? When do they have appointments? I mean, when I first started going to therapy, the idea of online therapy, virtual therapy, it wasn't even an option. And now things are so much easier, so much better. Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, be a guiding light. And Talkspace, specifically today's sponsor, can help with any specific challenges you might be facing. It's the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties. And with Talkspace, you can easily find a therapist that you like. You can schedule virtual appointments and make the most of your time, which even as you're taking care of yourself, you always should try to do. And as a listener of this podcast, you'll get 80 bucks off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com stoic. To match with a licensed therapist, go to Talkspace.com stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month. Show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash Stoic. Yeah, I think at the root of this, the, the tricky thing is identity, right? And uh, there's a great expression, the idea of keeping your identity small. The more you identify with, basically, the, stupid, the stupider you are because it, it constrains you, it limits you. And like, I, I definitely get the idea, like, hey, my grandfather told me this story. I don't want to think that he's a liar. The, the problem is identifying, right? Like, I, and this is something I said in my comments of the thing. I was like, look, my great-grandfather on my mother's side, and I only kind of found this out somewhat recently for, for reasons I think people understand. We try not to talk about things that are unpleasant. But my, I always knew my grandmother and immigrated here from Germany in the 1950s. And it only occurred to me as I got older, like, oh, you know, how, what did your parents do, right? My, my great-grandfather fought on the wrong side in the Second World War. My dad's father fought on the right side, but um, my great-grandfather fought for the Germans. He was drafted like a lot of Southern soldiers. Um, but, you know, that was a very long time ago. It was a horrible thing. But it doesn't say anything about me as a person, right? I didn't benefit from this in any way. In fact, it so destroyed my family's country that they had to come here in the first place. But I think the trouble is when you find yourself identifying with these figures in the past instead of trying to learn from them or grow from them. You know what I mean? Like it, 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 it doesn't say anything about me that my great grandfather did a bad thing. It would say something about me if 70 years after he did a bad thing, I tried to put up a statue in his honor to celebrate and whitewash his accomplishments. And that's, what's so interesting about right. the civil war stuff is it wasn't the grieving widows and orphans that did it. It was like two generations later for a very nefarious purpose and an almost inexcusable, even less excusable purpose, which was to actively re-disenfranchise a whole group of people. It was, it was basically what we're talking about, people seizing government and using it against another group of people. It was basically to say, um, we don't give a shit what's in the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments that don't go around here. That's what these monuments are really about. Yeah. I mean, and what we see is to your point is 
<clears throat> that these monuments are going up in every moment where there is uh, some uh, potential opportunity for black mobility, right? Like we see it at the beginning of the uh, 20th century uh, when black people, when at the beginning of the Great Migration, uh, when black people are moving uh, from the South to uh, urban cities like Chicago, Detroit, um, New York, and even out West like Los Angeles, and are after World War II, uh, you have many of the uh, white soldiers who came back from, or excuse me, after World War One, you have many of the white soldiers who came back and realized that many of their jobs had been taken by uh, black people who had come uh, come from the South up to the North and were working in many of these factories, working in many of these places. And they hated it. They hated that the, you know, the, the demographic makeup of these cities was changing so quickly. They hated that these men were uh, taking the, their jobs. Uh, and then black veterans similarly came back after World War One. Uh, over almost 350,000 of them. And we're like, we just fought a war for this country. And we're not going to come back and be subjected to second-class citizenship when we just risked our lives to 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 defend the, the promise uh, of this nation. And so, you know, you had this cataclysmic thing happening. And, and what happened is that more Black people were like, we're not going to just be subjected to uh, this incessant racism anymore. And and then more white people were like, you're not going to intrude upon our, our like physically, our, our property and our neighborhoods, uh, but also socially, like our sense of where we are in the American hierarchy. And it just had this, you know, enormous sort of cataclysmic um, effect. There was a, a huge sort of conflagration. We see the riots of 1919 uh, and the uprisings of 1919 throughout the country. Uh, and then around this same time, you see all these monuments go up because very a lot of white people throughout the country are very intentionally trying to send a signal to black Americans about what is valued in this country uh, and what this country stands for and who it is for and what better way I guess in their mind to do that than to put up monuments to people who fought a war that was predicated on uh, ex on maintaining and expanding the the worst manifestation of white supremacy or the most extreme manifestation of white supremacy, uh, which which was slavery. It's interesting too. You know, I visited a bunch of different Civil War battlefields at the time. We had a pretty good, like, like first off, if you look at like the official records from the Civil War, it's called like, it's not called the Civil War. It's called the War of Rebellion. And when you look at, you know, there's no Confederate veterans buried at Gettysburg. Mm -hmm. I remember being at Vicksburg and looking at the cemetery and then realizing, oh, the Confederate cemetery is like over there. Because mm -hmm. when they set this up, the, 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 the people who had just won this battle at this horrible cost, they weren't like marry me, uh, you know, bury me next to my brothers from down South. They, they were, they saw these people as, as the perpetrators of a, of not just the injustice of slavery as they came to understand the war, but also the injustice of treason and, and they were traitors. Right. And, and so it's, it's so interesting to me that we had this sense then, but as we've gotten away from it, it's like the side with the most guilt has obviously worked the hardest to, mythologize and change and 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 uh distort what happened and i think we're, we're already seeing this right with the events of january 6th mm -hmm. um most people who watched it on tv see it 
as exactly as it is. And then there's a, a small percentage, not super small, but a minority of people who have a vested political and emotional uh, motivation for presenting it as something other than what it obviously was. As a historian, as a culture, how does a society battle that? Like how, it's like, it goes back to your point. It's like, most people just want to go back to their normal lives. Mm -hmm. And then you've got these people motivated by cognitive dissonance and malevolence and stupidity that want to uh, spend a lot of time litigating an event and, and how it gets represented culturally. How does a society fight that? Like, how, how do you prevent lost cause mythology from being rooted in the consciousness? It strikes me that after the Civil War, there was a part of the North that just finally said, like, we don't want to talk about this anymore. You can tell yourself whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And that clearly, in retrospect, was an enormous mistake, a costly mistake. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think you're absolutely right to draw parallels between so much of what we see after the end of the Civil War and and what we saw on January 6th or, or now continue to see about January 6th. And, and, you know, I brought up Alexander Stevens and his cornerstone speech before in 1861. What's fascinating is that after the war, uh, Alexander Stevens is, you know, writing his memoirs, he's being interviewed, and people are like, man, Alexander, you wrote this cornerstone speech in which you said the new the cornerstone <laughs> right. of the new nation was the inferiority of black people and that it was built on the premise that uh slavery should be perpetuated indefinitely and and this was the cause of the civil war like what do you have to say for yourself and he's like i never said that and they're like well, wow. what are you talking about you you said it we were there it's in the newspaper we have we have a record of it he's like no 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 they must have misquoted me like they, i never said anything like that they must be twisting and misrepresenting my words and this was like this was what was happening with so many people who fought for the Confederacy at the end of the Civil War, there was this sort of 19th century gaslighting that was happening where they were telling us that what we saw and heard over the course of four years, and, and really over the course of 250 years, um, was not actually what we saw or what we heard. And And you see this with Jefferson Davis, you see this with Alexander Stevens, you see this with the entirety of the lost cause uh, ideological project, which is, to, you know, that they are trying to make it so that people think that slavery was a benevolent institution, uh, that it, uh, as the historian Ul Ulrich B. Phillips uh, talks about, uh, who was one of the leading historians of the early 20th century, uh, talked about slavery as this thing that rescued black people from the savagery of Africa, gave them Christianity, gave them civilization, gave them structure uh, in their lives, talked about them in, in, uh, in paternalistic ways as if they were these sort of... Um, a children, a childlike, who needed the protection um, and supervision of white people, uh, or as the John Calhoun, you know, in uh, the 19th century, the famous or the infamous senator from South Carolina said, "Slavery is a positive good for both black and white people alike." And most people don't realize that that is the predominant view that most people, until the mid 20th century in this country, had of what slavery was because the lost cause uh, propaganda effort was so successful. Um, and even to this day, you know, a, a 2018 Southern Poverty Law Center study showed that only 8% of U.S. high school seniors were able to identify slavery as the central cause of the Civil War. Like 8%. And 
and and you know i i would hope that over the course of you know given what's happened over the past few years that that number would be would be higher but we live in a country in which the in which there has been an intentional systemic effort over the course of decades to prevent people from thinking holistically and honestly about what has created the conditions of the society that we live in today. Um, and when you don't understand the history, when you're not taught this history, and this and to your point about like how can we combat this sort of strange gaslighting and lost cause propaganda, part of what you have to do is proactively teach the sort of history that will not allow us to fall into the trap of thinking that the reason one community looks one way and another community looks another way is somehow because of the people in those communities rather than what has been done to those communities generation after generation after generation. Because once you acutely understand the contours of American history, you can look around and understand that the reason that this country looks the way that it does is because of a series of decisions that have uh, designed our society uh, to to exist and sort of manifest itself in this way. Um, and this country can't lie to you anymore once you're sort of equipped with that toolkit of information. Uh, and, and in the process of writing this book, like that is largely what I was kind of doing for myself. It was four years of trying to accumulate knowledge and information and a toolkit with which to more effectively understand this period of American history that I, I understood on a sort of surface level, but didn't actually understand in any way that was commensurate with the impact that it had on this country. Yeah, isn't that kind of the irony of the the sort of moral panic about critical race theory? It's like, um, you know, it, history shouldn't be a political tool. It's not propaganda. And it's like, what do you think you've been taught? What do you think has been taught for the last 150 years? It has been systematically uh, used as a political tool to not and and not even effectively right it was like the the education system was hijacked to cover up the crimes and to rationalize a thing for a bunch of people that were already dead that's what i that's what's so baffling to me about it when you talk like because i'll get emails from people when i talk about this stuff you like people will feel so intensely about it and it's like like look like I have studied history deeply. I've been to the same places that you've been in the book. I've written about the Civil War. I'm fascinated with all this stuff. It doesn't make me not like America. It just makes me see America as it actually was. Um, and and actually, I think the greatest civil rights leaders, I mean, what, what was so brilliant about Martin Luther King, for instance, was his ability to to get, and Frederick Douglass as well, is get to the core of what actually America was about and to use those documents and that idea and those ideals to 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 show how morally hypocritical we are being and try to urge people towards those ideas right so like i i just don't get this idea that you know looking at the terrible things that happened in the past uh, somehow diminish our prospects for a brighter future on the exact contrary. You understand what happened so you can grow and learn from it and be made better. And then also ideally make restitution or uh, adjustments to compensate for the lingering consequences of those injustices. Absolutely. And and I think that part of the reason we can't even have a real conversation about restitution and about reparations is because we're not all operating 
with the same sort of like uh, epistemological set of information, right? Like we don't we, occupy the same reality. We don't. We don't. We we occupy two f- fundamentally different. Um, if we're to sort of generalize, like two different. Uh, sphe- like spheres of of truth and knowledge, mm-hmm. and obviously that has been exacerbated by the uh, nature of our current media ecosystem, um, which which I think you know amplifies the the sort of worst impulses of of so many people, um, you know. But it's one of those things where it is not as if there are not examples of what uh, a more proactive and honest reckoning could look like, right? I mean, Germany Germany does this, you know? And, and one of the places that I go in the book um, to make the, to draw that comparison, I think about uh, Angola prison. Mm-hmm. And so Angola is one of the places I go, uh, and it is the largest maximum security prison in the country, 18,000 acres wide, bigger than the island of Manhattan. It is a place where 75% of the people held there are black men, over 70% of them are serving life sentences. And it is built on top of a, of a former plantation. It's basically an American gulag. And so what and yeah, what I tell people is that if you were to go to Germany and you had the largest maximum security prison in Germany built on top of a former concentration camp in which the people held there were disproportionately Jewish, that place would would rightfully and so clearly be a global emblem. It would be like something doesn't smell right. That there, be, that that just doesn't make sense. It would be absurd. It would be abhorrent. We would never allow a place like that to exist because it would run counter to all of our moral and ethical sensibilities. It would, it would, it's disgusting to even think about it. And yet, here in the United States, we have the largest prison in the country where the vast majority of people are black men serving life sentences, many of whom were sentenced as children, many of whom were sentenced by non-unanimous juries, which has since been rendered unconstitutional by the Supreme Court of the United States because it existed with the specific intention to continue to uh convict as many black people as possible uh, who are working in these fields of what was once a plantation for virtually no pay while someone watches over them on horseback with a gun over their shoulder. And so part of what I'm exploring are what are the ways that a history of white supremacy not only enacts physical violence against people's bodies, but also collectively numbs us to certain types of uh, structural and systemic violences that in another global context would so clearly be unacceptable. And the thing that the reason that that kind of thing doesn't happen in Germany is because that country, not not perfectly, but but proactively, is engaged in a process of saying this, we did this thing, the Holocaust. And it was done in our name. And it is one of the most shameful, horrific things that have ever been done in human history. And it was not that long ago. There are people who are still alive today who lived through what we did who lost people they loved because of what we did, millions and millions of people. And so there are monuments, there are museums, there are, uh, one of my favorite things is they have these kind of things called stumbling stones, which are these yes. sort of uh, tens, you know, tens of thousands of these, these brass bricks almost um, that are sort of slightly elevated off the ground. And, you know, you can't go into a Nike store or a restaurant or a yoga studio uh, without encountering one of these bricks that has the name um, of the person who used to live in that residence, whether it's still a residence or whether it's become a commercial property. Uh, it forces you to bump into the injustices of history. All over, right? You see the name, you see the the date they were taken, you see what happened to them. Um, and so you are regularly encountering 
in uh, as part of the everyday landscape, these reminders of what was done. And so that infiltrates itself uh, into the, the sensibilities and the public consciousness of people in that country that then informs how they make decisions about how to make amends for what has uh, happened historically and also how to move forward um, and, and create, uh, you know, political decisions and public policy decisions in a domestic and global context that are in, that are uh, set on uh, not making that same mistake again or not falling into the same level of uh, malevolence um, that, that was once uh, central and defining to that nation. Got a quick message from one of our sponsors here, and then we'll get right back to the show. Stay tuned. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now, like for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts, discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Get your Easter shopping done without leaving the house with DoorDash. When the holidays come around and family comes to town, things can get forgotten. But with DoorDash, you can order your Easter baskets, chocolate bunnies, brunch must-haves, and so much more all in one place delivered right to your door. Actually, last Easter, I was in Annapolis. I was giving a talk and we realized we didn't have some of the Easter supplies we needed for the hotel room we were in to give our kids a little on-the-road Easter experience. And that's what we did. We DoorDashed everything we needed for Easter just like a couple weeks weeks ago when I hurt my ankle, I door dashed an ankle brace and some medicine. You can get anything you need on DoorDash with so many local and national stores to choose from. You can take it easy this Easter knowing you can get everything you need. Whether you're looking for plastic eggs for your Easter egg hunt or needing an ingredient for a side dish, DoorDash can help. Order now and get everything you need for Easter on DoorDash. Use code DAILYSTOIC to get 50% off up to $10 when you spend 15 bucks on your next convenience, grocery, or retail order on DoorDash. That's code daily stoic order using doordash today for eligible users only terms apply and what i would add to that and i think that's what you just said is beautifully expressed and and the analogy with angola and a concentration camp i i hadn't quite thought of uh it, it it's very very compelling what i would add is this isn't just about moral penance or like you know, washing away blood guilt, although I, I actually think that is important and should be done um, because a, a culture sort of weighed down by these things is is flawed. Um, but there's a self-interest to it, too. I mean, first off, you could argue part of the reason Germany goes down that path is because the United States at the point of a gun sort of uh, forces what, what they called denazification mm -hmm. that unfortunately we didn't quite do in the South after the Civil War. But I, I just read this fascinating book, um, 
by Jack Weatherford called Indian Givers. It's not a great title. It was actually written in the 80s. But mm. it, basically, it's it's a look at all of the sort of things that we got from the Native Americans, um, who we also, you know, uh, you want, if you want to talk a ho- about a Holocaust, we, we perpetuated a Holocaust here in America against the, the, the uh, Aboriginal people. And... And and what what he was talking about in the book is all, all these things, and it, it really hit me because I'm from Ca- I'm from California. I now live in the South, but you know, race is Native Americans. It's more of a part of the sort of cultural conversation and history in California than race is because it wasn't a slave state, um, and you know, what not really part of the Civil War. But but you know, I've I've had a bit, clearly had a bit of a blind spot as to the severity and the 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 horrific tragedy of, of what we perpetuate against Native Americans. And reading this book, it was very eye-opening and inspiring and interesting. And anyways, the, the, one of the things he concludes the book with, and I encourage everyone to read it, is he's talking about, it's, it's not just all the things we got from Native Americans um, that we should be grateful for, but he says the cautionary tale is what our racism and our fear and our sort of insatiability took from us. You know, he talks about all these things that, you know, Native Americans discovered that they brought to us all these modern medicines at the root of this and that, ways of hunting, ecological preservation. And he's like, as the last of these people die out, they are taking with them knowledge and understanding and a way of living that is lost to us forever. And that's been happening, he said, for 500 years. I think that's the other tragedy of this sort of distorted, dishonest history we've told ourselves is that it hasn't served anyone well. It didn't serve, obviously, uh, black people well. But, you know, the perpetuation of this uh, screwed up system and this, this, this hatred it hasn't served America well either, you know? Mm. And I think, I think that's the big thing. You should look at history and you should learn from it, not just so you don't do bad things, but also it is through the mixing of cultures and perspectives that, that you unlock incredible power and collaboration and creativity. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think that, that that's absolutely true. And I think, I think all of us have to just move through the world with a level of uh, of humility um, and recognize that there's there's a lot we don't know, and that like the project of our lives in so many ways is to to both learn and to unlearn uh, so much of what we've been taught. Part of what I I loved and and tried to model the book after was the sort of uh, generosity and graciousness. Um, of so many of the public historians and tour guides yes. and docents who who I met who who are balancing this sense of um, uh, generosity while also holding uh, a sense of responsibility and accountability, which is to say, you know, I think about the two women that I met uh, in uh, at Monticello uh, when I went to Monticello Plantation, which is. As many know, the the home of Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers and the third president of the United States. And I was on this tour, which is uh, focused specifically on the history of slavery at Monticello. And these two women, Donna and Grace, were were on the tour. And I was kind of watching them as we were on this tour by this guy named David Thorson, who in the course of 45 minutes to an hour 
had really given a masterclass on the sort of contradictions and hypocrisy and cognitive dissonance of of Thomas Jefferson and also centering the story of Monticello not only on Jefferson but on the hundreds of enslaved people who lived there because the thing about Jefferson is that you know he wrote one of the most important documents in the history of the western world he also enslaved over 600 people over the course of his lifetime including four of his own children he you know wrote in one document that all men are created equal and wrote in another document that black people are inferior to whites in both endowments and body uh, in endowments of body and mind as he put it and and so how you know when i went to monticello part of what i'm trying to get a sense of is like how do you as an institution tell them honest and fuller more robust um uh, an intellectually rigorous uh, story about who Jefferson was and what he stood for. And so that's what David is doing. And Donna and Grace are sitting there and their mouths are kind of agape and they're clearly unsettled. And I go up to them after and I was like, you know, I'd love to hear about how you experienced, uh, you know, what you just heard. And Donna was like, man, he really took the shine off the guy. <laughs> and and they're like, I had no idea Jefferson owned slaves. I had no idea Monticello wow. was a plantation. These are people who who bought plane tickets, who rented cars, who were self have good jobs, have good jobs, were self-proclaimed history buffs, right? And they were they came to this site as a sort of pilgrimage to see the home of the the founding father, you know, of, of one of the our first presidents and had no idea that it was the home of somebody who enslaved hundreds of human beings. And that moment was such an important reminder to me that there are so many people across this country, just millions of people who don't understand the history of slavery in any way that is commensurate and proportionate to the impact that it had and continues to have on this country. But but the thing that people like David do is that they're, they are holding, as I said, this sort of like, I'm going to, I recognize that millions of us uh, across generations have been failed by our educations and have not been presented with information that helps us more fully understand uh, this part of American history. Have, but at the have same, you been? Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say. But at the same time, you have a responsibility now that you are being, uh, encountering this information to hold it and to sit uncomfortably with it and to consider what it means, how, and to put it in conversation with the story of America and of our founding fathers that you've been taught in order to uh, recalibrate and reconceptualize how you understand what you understand the history of this country. To be, uh, and and part of what I wanted the book to do was hold that same level of, of both generosity and accountability, which is to say we can't run from this information, especially when it's right in front of us. Uh, but I also recognize that in the same way that I didn't know a lot of this stuff at the beginning, many of my readers might not have known a lot of this stuff, um, and that's okay as long as we are using this as an opportunity to say I didn't know, but now I do, and I also want to know more. Like, have you been to the uh, the Anne Frank House in Amsterdam? I've not. It's it's like one of the most moving, uh, sobering things you'll you'll ever do in your life. Like you you see where this like family of eight people, these two families, eight people live in this you know tiny attic, mm -hmm. and and it brings home the reality of the Holocaust in a way that you you can't you know comprehend in any other way. And I think that's the other the, the other thing is like when you when you have this whitewashed you know, dishonest view of history. Yeah, sure. It might make your plantation tour, you know, slightly less uncomfortable and you can have your plantation wedding at one of these venues or something and not feel bad about it. But it also deprives you and us of other 
transcendence, the wrong word, but deeply moving and, uh, you know, transformative experiences. I was just reading that, um, the National Park Service is is taking over the uh, forks of the road site in Natchez, Mississippi, and they're building a national park sort of monument to one of the one of the most uh, prolific slave markets in the United States. Mm. And I think that when when you wrestle with history and you're not afraid of indicting people again who are long since dead. What it gets you is opportunities for things like that. You know, and it's funny, as controversial as it is right now, you can imagine 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 50 years from now, that place will have been visited by millions and millions of tourists, right, who came and learned and experienced something. So it's so funny that we're resistant to questioning and showing things in the slightest unfavorable light. But it's really ourselves and future generations who we're, we are depriving by doing it. We're not protecting anyone. We're, we're actually depriving them. Like, uh, yeah, do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a huge disservice. Um, and, and part of what I hope that we are moving toward is, is, a, is a sense that, like, for so long in the history of this country, we have deprived people from understanding the totality of of this history um in in ways that have incredibly detrimental impacts on on all of our lives you know and and part of what has happened is that we have allowed these artificially created notions that are are created with the specific intention of demarcating who has power and who doesn't uh to give us a distorted sense of who deserves certain things and who doesn't deserve other things or why certain communities look one way and why certain communities look another way. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think this is related. But I think all the time about, and this I think really became clear for me in the book, you were talking about like what happens with, across generations with this. And I think about uh, people who... I, you know, clearly I think about the enslaved all the time. And what I think about, and especially now that Juneteenth is a federal holiday, I've been thinking about this a lot, but the idea that, you know, if we're to think about the first enslaved people coming to the United States in 1619, um, or what would become the United States, the, the British colonies that would become the U.S. in 1619 in Virginia, you know, black people were fighting for freedom in this country from the moment they arrived on these shores which means that the vast majority of people who fought for freedom never got a chance to see it. Mm -hmm. But that also doesn't mean that what they fought for was for nothing, right? Because what they did was create the space for the next generation to continue fighting and then for the next generation and for the next generation. And ultimately a moment opened up in history uh, that, that led to the emancipation of, of, uh, black people in this country in the abolition of one of the worst things and one of the worst institutions that this country has ever had. And that is only possible because of the millions and millions of people who fought their entire lives for something that they never got a chance to see themselves. And for me, that is what all of us are called to do, right? That like my life is only possible because of generations of people who fought for something 
that they knew might, they might never see but fought for it anyway. And so what responsibility does that give me mm-hmm. to try to fight for and build for or build toward and write toward and create toward a better world that I might never see, that my children might never see, but that someday someone will, you know, like I think that that's a responsibility that we all carry. Yes, Seneca has a great line. He says, we can't choose our parents, but we can choose whose children we would like to be. Hmm. And to me, that's the choice that we have when we study history, right? Is who, it doesn't matter where you're born, what race you are, you know, you could have had a long generation, uh, you know, a long family tree. You all fought for the Confederacy, but you can choose to be related to Frederick Douglass. Like you can choose to be the heir to Frederick Douglass or an abolitionist or, you know, uh, a, a, f- a freedom fighter of any kind. Like we get to choose. We're not chained to the past in this. Uh, the past happened, but we choose whether we're going like we choose whether we are going to chain ourselves to it. And that's what I meant about this sort of uh, analogy with my with my grandparents. Like, am I going to choose to be the descendant of my great grandfather who fought for the Germans? Or am I going to choose to be the grandson of my grandfather who landed at Normandy? Mm. Right. Am I going to choose. And then on, on my on, on that side of the family, he's from Michigan, you know, moves to California, never experiences, you know, it sort of has more of the American dream. My, my grandmother graduated from Little Rock High School before it was uh, before it was desegregated. Am I who's whose tradition am I going to follow it? Right. What torch am I going to carry? And it's just so strange that we willingly choose to carry the bad torch. But a lot mm. of people choose that. It's 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 quite surreal. Or we choose, you know what? We choose not to think about it at all. Did you read um did you read Wright Thompson's piece in the Atlantic about Emmett Till? I did. Yeah. Oh my god. What what what's first off, beautiful piece. Everyone should read it. I took two things from it. One, that Carol Bryant is still alive. Yeah. Uh, that the 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 woman who accused Emmett Till is still walking the earth. So we think about history. You know, Faulkner talks about the past not being the past. I mean, she's literally not dead yet. But the the thing that struck me that I think is representative is the real cautionary, is a cautionary tale of that story, is the family that owns the house and the barn where Emmett Till was murdered. The guy's like, oh, yeah, I just choose not to think about it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Wasn't that very striking that he could sit in his pool and not not really think about what happened. I mean, it was so revealing. I mean, and 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 it's in some ways clarifying. I mean, in the sense that, like, you know, you mentioned plantation weddings, and and there was a huge part of my book, um, or a significant part of my book, that was initially about plantation weddings, and we ended up cutting it because, you know, I didn't want the book to be um, overly sprawling and and too massive, and I wanted it to be uh, as tight as possible, but. What was interesting is that I went to a bunch of plantations where people hold weddings, um, and I I just wanted to understand like how what would motivate someone to want to celebrate one of the, the most joyous days of their life on the site of what I can only understand as being a, a place of intergenerational torture and exploitation, a mini like, holocaust. You know exactly like what what leads to that? Is it is it that they know and don't care? Is it that they don't know 
or is it that they know and and that is they actually kind of relish in that you know I, and yeah. and that is the sort of question and i think it depends for for each person uh but but i, I think it's tied to this idea of that that dentist you know sitting in his pool and looking over at his barn and saying that is a place that was uh in which this horrific thing happened that that was one of the most you know arguably one of the most important events in in um 20th century american history um certainly in you know in terms in the sense that the the murder and lynching of emmett till is is uh, part of what uh precipitated the the civil rights movement um and to look at it and be like ah oh, you know like eh like i'm just going to i'm just going to that 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 is that it is so it feels so distant yeah. for him um and i think that that distance is a microcosm of the distance that so many people in this country feel about these parts of history that they feel have nothing they believe and have convinced themselves that it doesn't have anything to do with them when it actually has everything to do with them it has everything to do with all of us and the problem is that whether it be slavery or indigenous genocide or uh or uh, in contemporary immigration issues or japanese american internment i mean all of these things that we are should be deeply shameful of as a country many of us have convinced ourselves that it is somehow over there and that it has nothing to do with us um but but it does because we are we are here and we are part of um the part of we are part of the story that will or won't be told about these things um whether we like it or not yeah and he didn't come off as a bad person he didn't come off as a racist or a weirdo sort of creepily into this stuff it it was just kind of a a benign deliberate ignorance of the implications of a thing that was literally in his backyard it it was it was almost i mean right is such an amazing writer I, I, I this is why it hit us over the head i think but it 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 was so symbolic that uh it it really does wake you up a bit yeah and and i just learned a lot of i think there was a lot of reporting in that piece that i um just hadn't been familiar with you know i i, I don't think i i don't actually think i knew um that it had happened that so much of what happened before he was thrown into the the river um had happened in a barn at all uh, i'd never heard of the barn yeah and it's just again it's it's a it was a reminder for me that like even the stories we think we know there's a, there's a lot of that we don't uh a lot that we don't know and you know the thing about writing a book like this is the research was one of the was i mean the research was the reason i wrote it it was to give my, to provide me with information in history that uh that was deeply important and and transformative for me personally um but you know the every new book you open provides a new level of nuance provides a new detail provides a new a way of thinking about um something that i you know have spent had spent years thinking about and that is why you know the scholars uh and historians who do this work who who dedicate their lives to this work um whether they're academic historians or public historians are are so important because they're always I think about somebody like Annette Gordon-Reed 
whose work uh, on Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. That's why they were talking about her at Monticello. Like, she li- changed. And literally yeah. changed the whole conversation in this country around how we understood Thomas Jefferson. I mean, like an exemplar of what like deep, rigorous historical work can do. They, you know, I talked to people who went to Monticello um, 10, 20 years ago, uh, 30 years ago, and they're like, uh, the Monticello you went to sounds very different than the one that I went to. <laughs> Because they were not talking about any of this um, before, and and to me that that is that that provides me with hope, because people can change, yes. institutions can change. We can tell, we can gain new information and tell different stories, tell more honest stories. Uh, and I think Monticello is a place that is always attempting to to interrogate what they do or don't do, what stories they tell and don't tell, and as a result have evolved in the way that they have told the story of Jefferson in a way that I think is really important. Um, And I think is a model for so many of us. And look, that change is in your self-interest, right? And and, uh, another deeply reported book that I was just thinking about is The The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, I I was thinking about the Tuskegee experiments. Our failure to talk about those things, uh, atone for them, uh, address them, and learn from them. You want to talk about why certain communities are slightly more vaccine hesitant, which, you know, again, has implications for everyone. It's because we're too afraid to go deal with things. And the failure to deal with those unpleasant historical events and injustices has ongoing consequences for the future that negatively affect you and your children. Like lying about the past is not a victimless crime is I mm-hmm. guess what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's, um, that's absolutely true. And, and, and we feel the future generations feel the effects of that. Yes. Um, and, and it, it shapes again, like what are, you know, I so I think about the origin point of this book, <clears throat> uh, and this book was written in uh, or began being written in 2017 uh, when I was watching several Confederate statues come down in my hometown. Statues of PGD Beauregard, Jefferson Davis, uh, Robert E. Lee, all these statues coming down in New Orleans uh, after sort of two years of litigation and political fights and battles. Um, I watched the Robert E. Lee statue come down in New Orleans. I was there. It was it was a pretty oh, moving wow. experience. Yeah, no, it's uh, uh, yeah. I wish I had been able to be there. I watched the the live stream from my yeah. home here in Maryland, and and what I was thinking about was like, what does it mean that I grew up in a city in which the there are more homages to enslavers than there are to enslaved people? Um, a guy who never even went to New Orleans had nothing to do with New Orleans, right? Like, I mean, it, you know, it's but again, is a reminder that he, Robert E. Lee was just an avatar yes. for uh, this sort of larger message um, that that folks at that time were trying to send. And you know, I thought about what it meant that I to get to school, I had to go down Robert E. Lee Boulevard to get to the grocery store. I had to go down Jefferson Davis Highway. That to, that my middle school was named after a leader of the Confederacy. That. My parents still live on a street named after somebody who owned 150 enslaved people. Yeah, not and, Louis Armstrong, not Little Wayne Boulevard, or, yeah. you know, any any actual heroes of that city. And and what is what are the implications of that? Because symbols and iconography and 
Street names, are they're not just symbols. They are reflective of the stories that people tell. And those stories shape the narratives that communities carry. And those narratives shape public policy. And public policy shapes the material conditions of people's lives, as we've talked about. And, you know, that's not to say that taking a six, taking down a 60-foot-tall statue of Robert E. Lee is going to erase the racial wealth gap. But it is to say that these are all part of an ecosystem of ideas and stories that are told that shape how we understand what has happened in American history, what has happened in in this country, what has happened in our our respective cities and communities, and thus what needs to be done in order to make amends for the harm that is uh, that has transpired over the course of this history uh, to build a more just and equitable and and fair world. Um, and you know, so when we talk about this, you know, the deception and lies that are you know that we've been taught or that our kids are taught or that all of these things are a part of it. And like, we can, you know, I think about Jeff, who we talked about earlier in our conversation, like Jeff could tell a different story. Jeff, instead of telling his grand, his own granddaughters, the story that his grandfather told him, he could hold his granddaughter's hands, walk through that cemetery and say, these are your ancestors. These are members of your family. And they fought a war to preserve a terrible, terrible thing but you are not defined by the decisions that your family has made. You can make a different set of decisions and you are not tethered to, to that history um, because that history does not singularly define you. Uh, and that there are people who make that decision and we just need more people to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's another sad thing that I've realized sort of as I studied American history and uh, the civil war is that we, where we really, where the lost cause mythology really deprived us of a inspiring historical narrative, came with Reconstruction, the passage of the Thirteenth, Fourteenth, Fifteenth Amendments, the, the the Freedmen's Bureaus, the the immense work that we tried to do as a country to begin to address some of the wrongs of slavery before you know that cause was betrayed and and undermined for you know. Uh, political purposes before we abandon it, we almost did the right thing. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. there's no monuments to that. Instead, we celebrate Robert E. Lee and and, uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest. We don't study, you know, the people who... We don't we don't celebrate Thaddeus Stevens, Mm -hmm. right? Or or the people who went down south and taught in those schools. Um, We don't celebrate... Booker T. Washington, or, you know, we don't celebrate the people who out of the wreckage of that historical uh, injustice tried to push us in the right direction. Uh, And to me, that's a real tragedy. And it's a lost opportunity because then we don't get to pick up where they left off. And it, you know, it stalled us out for like a hundred years. Yeah, it it absolutely did. Um, And there's a lot of work to be done to sort of like unwedge us from mm-hmm. uh, from these, a lot of the BS that, that's that been propagated um, over the course of, of centuries. Um, and what I wanted to do with this book was equip myself with more information, uh, more tools, a better framework um, to to make sense of, of what has happened and to to be, able to, to be able to look at this country with uh, with clearer eyes and and to be able to look at it with um, 
a level of clarity that I don't think I, I, I'd had before. Um, and I hope that it can do that for, uh, for the reader as well. It, it absolutely did. It's a wonderful book. I, I, to end on a positive note, um, I saw the, the picture that you posted on Instagram, uh, when you were FaceTiming with your grandparents, yeah, uh, with the news that the book had hit number one, which is an incredibly difficult accomplishment. Uh, you know, I'm just trying to be like you. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so tell me, tell me how that went, and tell me what they think of it, because a lot of the history that you're talking about in the book, obviously not the Civil War itself, but some of the more recent stuff, like they they were alive for. When, when were they born? My grandfather was born in 1930, Jim Crow, Mississippi. My grandmother was born in 1939, Jim Crow, Florida. Um, and it was so special to be able to share that with them. I mean, they, it was special in many ways because they are featured in the book. Uh, the The epilogue is largely about the two of them and and the trip that we took to the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Um, and, you know, one of the things that my grandfather was saying, my grandmother was saying when we talked about our visit to that museum, a few years ago, she was just looking around and we were realizing how much of the history in that museum and how much of the violence documented in that museum is something that they experienced firsthand. And my grandmother kept saying, she was like, I lived it. I lived it. Yeah, that I was news, it. not history to her. Yeah, absolutely. And and it also gave me a sense of, uh, a, a more acute sense of our proximity to that history. Um, and that period of time, you know, I, I'm, I feel like I was taught about slavery as if it was this thing, you know, especially when I was in like elementary and middle school, that it was this thing that happened in like the Jurassic period, you know, that it was like dinosaurs and the Flintstones and, and slavery, almost as if they all happened at the same time. Even though the school you were in in New Orleans was probably built in the Civil War. Yeah, no, for it's sure. I mean, it, you know, the whole, as the historian Walter Johnson says, the whole city of yeah. New Orleans is a memorial, a memorial to slavery. Uh, and, you know, I think about the, the National Museum of African American History and Culture and think about how the woman who opened that museum alongside the Obama family in 2016 was the daughter of an enslaved person, right? Not the granddaughter or the great granddaughter. Right. She was the daughter of someone born into intergenerational chattel slavery. And this is someone who was alive in 2016, just recently passed away. I, I just did a, I, I was doing an NPR interview and one of the people who called in uh, at his local station was talking about how she was raised by this little woman, I believe in her 70s, talking about how she was raised by her great-grandfather. Uh, and and she called him Pappy. And her great-grandfather was someone who was born into slavery, right? Wow. So like there are people who are alive today who who loved, who were in community with, who were raised by people born into chattel slavery in this country. And so when I speak to my grandparents, and that's part of what the that last section of the book is about, I'm reminded that this history we tell ourselves was a long time ago, wasn't that long ago at all. My grandfather's grandfather was enslaved. So when my four-year-old son sits on my grandfather's lap, I think about my grandfather sitting on his grandfather's lap. And and it is just a really intimate reminder um, that in the scope of human history, you know, this thing was just yesterday. Uh, and to and the, the suggestion, any suggestion someone would have that it has nothing to do with what the contemporary landscape of inequality looks like in this country, or what our social, economic, and political infrastructure look like and how they operate, are they're being morally and intellectually disingenuous. Or worse. Or worse. 
Clint, thank you so much. I, I loved the book. I'm so glad we got to talk. Uh, and uh, I can't wait for, for wherever, whatever journey the next book takes you on. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. There is only one more day to sign up for the Daily Stoic Leadership Challenge. I'm so excited. We've got a huge group of people who are lined up and ready to take this challenge with us. We're going to be talking to GMs of one of the great sports dynasties in American history. We're going to be talking to some military leaders, business leaders, entrepreneurs, people who have made it their business to study these questions of leadership. Each day you get an email from me. It's 63 emails, more than 30,000 words, all new content that helps you take the right steps along that week's path. There's gonna be three leadership Q&As with me. Again, a live office hours video session with me. Ancient wisdom for the modern leader. It's gonna be a masterclass in leadership with the cadence and rigor of a boot camp. It's also a live course, which means all the participants will join the course together. We're gonna to move through it together the same goal. I'm so excited about the material we've put together for you. There is seriously just one more day at midnight central time. The challenge closes. You can't sign up after that. And then we're all going to be in this awesome cohort for the next nine weeks. I hope to see you there. Sign up now. Talk soon. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. From Wondery, this is Black History For Real. I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Conscious Lee. What do most <laughs> people think about when they hear the words Black History? Rosa Parks, Reconstruction, MLK, February, Black History Exactly, Mom. exactly. There are so many stories of Black history that we just are not really talking about or thinking about, especially outside of February. And we are about to flip the script on all of that. Because on this show, you're going to hear a little less In August 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And a little bit more She is a heroine to some. As a fighter for black rights, she is a villain to others. Follow Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen everywhere on February 5th, or you can listen early and ad-free on Wondery Plus starting January 29th. Join Wondery Plus on the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Black